What's up, everyone? Just say thank you for tuning in today. If you enjoy the show, enjoy the content, just please make sure to rate, subscribe, and follow the page on Instagram at Overcoming the Divide. Thank you. Welcome back, everyone, for another episode of Overcoming the Divide. Today, we have on Carl Cannon. Carl Cannon is currently the Washington Bureau Chief for Real Clear Politics and the executive editor of Real Clear Media Group. Carl has been a recipient of the Gerald R. Ford Journalism Prize for Distinguished Reporting and the Aldo Beckman Award, two awards for his Distinguished White House press coverage. Carl is also a former president of the White House Correspondents Association and in 2007 was a fellow in residence at Harvard University's Institute of Politics and is a published author. So thank you for being here today, Carl. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. My pleasure, Dan. Of course. So with your extensive history in the White House, like press coverage, how do you believe the current state of affairs are there compared to where when you were there and how it is now? The open partisanship is new, uh, recent development. And I mean, historically recent development. Now, you know, the Republicans have complained that uh, reporters were too liberal, you know, all my life. And there's something to that where, you know, studies show that journalists are more, you know, more secular, more democratic, more liberal on a host of policy issues than the people we write about or cover, you know, but, but that, that was understood that you weren't supposed to lead with that. You were supposed to kind of confront your own bias and try and be fair. And, the last during the last two presidencies, those old that old ethos has sort of disappeared. And what's replacing it? I don't know. I, it has a feeling that we're in a transition time, you know. And you see now that there is more, say, just these questions being put forward by the Associated Press. That's all mainly just a big the big news headlines, CNN, Fox. It's not none of the little guys are getting the opportunity as. I think you will want to see more of it's kind of limited just to Fox, CNN, MSNBC. And I want to see, I want to hear your thoughts on that. If that was different when you were covering the white house as well, too. Well, that's interesting in that white house briefing room there, there, the, there's the front row. That's always the wires, you know, AP, mm-hmm. Reuters, uh, Bloomberg replaced UPI at some point. Right generation ago and then and then you know the main networks and those you know when i was when i was your age it was abc cbs nbc now you had fox and cnn to that um and then you know sort of in corresponding sort of the prestige you know diminishes as you go back i mean Mm. nobody says it quite this way the washington post and new york times are in the second or third row because not because they're less important than cnn but because all White Houses, you know, they cater to to the broadcast. That's sort of how they live. Um, but all but and the good press secretary will take questions all the way back because the questions don't get dumber as you go further deeper in the room. They often get more specific and better. Um, those reporters don't get called on every day. Um, they're also less inclined for just the news of the hour. You know, there used to be it's a hot story of the day, whatever it is, and it'd be forgotten the next day. And the and the wire service and the broadcast people would be all over that story. And their their bureau chiefs and their producers are pu- pushing them. But somebody, you know, I'd be in the row there with the when I was with the Baltimore Sun, 
and later National Journal, third or fourth, fourth row, I guess. And then, you know, USA Today, Boston Globe, these people, we'd be working on stories that maybe were a little different, a little more in depth. And when Mike McCurry was press secretary, uh, he was Bill Clinton's guy. He used to, he'd tell me he, he actually preferred those questions the further he got back. And sometimes those are smaller outlets, as you acknowledge, you know, real clear politics. We have a correspondent, Phil Wegman, and he, he asks, he has good questions and pointed questions. And even, even though they're tough questions, a good press secretary doesn't shy away from the tough questions. Jen Psaki calls on Phil all the time. She's not afraid of the questions. So, you know, partly that's the function. The White House, they're trying to, they're trying to do their thing, um, get their message out. But a good press secretary is intellectually curious and, and, and actually can learn from these questions, you know. I remember once I asked a question about gay marriage, um, no, excuse me, about gays in the military. Can you imagine that used to be an issue when I first got to the White House? And uh, Bill Clinton really, uh, McCurry and then Clinton appreciated it. And if you ask a detailed policy question, a good press secretary or a good president will think, ah, okay, there's something in that for me. I need to know about that. So the good good ones do call on on the, the less prestigious outlets. And it helps them if they do. I'm glad you brought up uh, how a president will call on them as well, because I want to hear your thoughts on what you think about, say, the president uh, answering questions and Jinsaki answering questions. What do you think that kind of looks like in terms of the thoroughness, the clearness of them and all around the, say, uh, persona of both of them, how, how they give how they portray themselves to the press? Well, you know, it's better for us when you when you're covering the beat. It's mm-hmm. just a better thing for the president to take the questions, ask the questions. This president we have now doesn't hold many press conferences. He doesn't do many briefings. And conservative critics, you know, have suggested that's because of his age. He's he's not he's not uh, you know he's almost eighty and he, he's not at the top of his game. I don't know whether that's true. I, I covered Biden when he was a young man. He was he was all that. That uh, phrase "gaff machine" that Biden used, Biden used that to describe himself, and it was a long time ago. So he knows he has a penchant for just talking off the cuff. And for a senator, fine, that's what they do. For a vice president, a little more problematic, but but there's a there's a method to it. You know, people forget this about Biden. He's got pretty good political instincts. He's the one who basically. Um, jumped the gun on the Democratic Party and said there was going to be a gay marriage plank in the Democratic platform at the 2016 convention. And, um, or rather, excuse, no, that would be, no, excuse me, the 2012 convention. And Obama wasn't there yet, you know, and the polling wasn't quite where they wanted it to be. Uh, people, Dan, was people your age, you know, the millennials and the Gen Z, they led the fight on this. Well, the millennials, really, they, they didn't even get the question when pollsters would ask them, gay marriage, like, what are you really asking me? Well, of course, people want to get married, they should get married. And this, this was the fastest social change I ever covered. Um, but the oldest guy in the, in the administration, Joe Biden, figured it out. I mean, there was going to be a walkout at that convention if, they, if the Democrats didn't do this. The progressives were going to insist on this, and they got their way. And Biden just sort of blurted it out one day. So there's a method to his madness, Joe Biden, mm-hmm. throughout his career. But as president... Presidents have to be more careful. You've noticed this with the this Putin regime's change business. Yeah. You know, a president says something and it's scrutinized and he's got to be careful. 
And, you know, although we as reporters want the president speaking, we think that's better. You can see in the White House why sometimes they want the experts speaking instead. And that's exactly where I kind of want to turn to this for a moment, because you said it's better to speak to the president. But at the same time, when you speak to the president, yet his White House comes out 30 minutes or so later and contradicts what the president says. And then when the president's later asked about it, it seems that there's a whole disconnect between what he's saying and what his own White House is saying. And then that's why I wanted to hear kind of what you thought about the two on that. You're, well, you're really right. And that's that's perceptive of you. Uh, I, I'll go back to something. Now, I wasn't covering the White House then, but I was in Washington. I was a very young reporter in my 20s. And Ronald Reagan was president. He proposed something called the Strategic Defense Initiative. It's going to shoot down Russian missiles, right? Missile defense. And man, the Democrats, the media went crazy. Oh, this is terrible. It's destabilizing. It won't work. The Russians will think, see it's a provocative, you know, provocation. Mm-hmm. I remember the, the, the Democratic Party talking points um, were actually at odds with each other. I've, I finally asked Paul Simon, not the singer, but the senator. He was a senator for Illinois. I said, well, OK, Paul, which is it? It's destabilizing or it won't work because if it won't work, it ain't destabilizing. If it won't work, the Russians don't care about it. Mm-hmm. He, he laughed. He said, well, that's our talking point. Man. But but Reagan announced this and he said something interesting. Reagan said we'd share the technology with the Soviets. Now think of this, it's aimed at the Soviet Union, but which, and what Reagan was, was trying to tell people is he, what, he was really, what he was really talking about was he wanted to prevent nuclear Armageddon. And what he was most worried about was an accidental launch by the Soviet Union, not by us. They were worried about one by us. Years later, Dave Hoffman, who covered the, the, the White House with the, for the Washington Post with my father, Luke Cannon, they both covered Reagan, Dave Hoffman came out with a book. There was very nearly an accidental launch by the Russians. They had their their radar wasn't very good, and they mistook a flock of geese for an incoming missile. And so Reagan's concern was this was right. Anyway, I digress. What Reagan said was, "I'll share this with the Soviets." Well, immediately his his crew, press secretary, defense. Oh no, no, he didn't really mean that. No, 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 no. And this and Reagan would like Biden would occasionally they say things off the cuff. You know, it was like. Working there was a little bit like cleaning up after the elephants in the circus. You had to come out there. Yeah. But but Reagan, in this case, Reagan said no. He came back and he had the rebuttal to the rebuttal. He said, no, my advisors are wrong. I meant this. This is what this is what I want to do. I want to share it with the Soviets. The real idea here is not to attack the Russians and have superiority. It's to have prevent a nuclear Armageddon. And so in this case, the president cleaned up after the people who thought they were cleaning up after the president. Yeah. And the way I like that example you provide, it's very insightful. I had no idea about that. But the main difference I see between the two is the motives of rhetoric, I would say. So one is escalation and one is de-escalation. In Reagan's case, it's more of a de-escalation thing. Yeah, we have this new missile defense system and we're launch it, but we're also going to share it with the Soviets. Now that's say unpopular because it's like trading secrets with the enemy, but that's not escalation by no means. If anything, that's a de-escalation, that's cooperation. Whereas what Biden says saying, Putin cannot remain in power, the most noble one. And then his White House saying, they mean he can't exert his power over the region. And then being asked, I think by a, a report, being asked by a reporter saying, well, did you make a mistake? Did you mean that? And he's like, I meant every word of it. It was a moral outrage. 
and he still and but that's more of an escalation to it so i, Look, I was you, you, you're right in this instance um you, you're right your point's well taken but the point i'm making is about presidential communications is that presidents they get corrected because they make mistakes but sometimes they didn't make a mistake and other times they, they said what was on their mind Mm-hmm. And and we need to know what a president is on a president's mind, whatever we privately think of it as reporters. The other thing is that, um, you know, in Biden's case, well, and this was true in the Reagan administration. It's true in every administration. There are tensions within the administration because there's people there's not a unanimity usually on these important questions. I suspect from hearing this ambivalence between Biden and his press secretary that there's a there's a dis- argument going on within the administration as there should be as what we what do we do about russia and ukraine it is not an obvious answer and and there may be no good choice there may be no good american option you i'm getting the impression but that's all it is that there are people less hawkish there that think that what biden should be doing is you know and usually this would come from the state department but that what biden should be doing is is leading the push to negotiate is to get these negotiations, maybe take a leading role. And other people who think there's no negotiating with Putin, he's he's just not a person you can do business with. And the only thing to do is confront him. So all, when you hear these statements and they sound conflicting, sometimes they reveal inner conflict within a president's own mind or within his administration. That's interesting. I, I, yeah, I, I see your point uh, now better that you're saying. It's speaking more towards the in the relationship between say the president and his advisors and the press secretary compared to the rhetoric itself. But, mm -hmm. and I want to, I was also curious in your thoughts about with uh, Putin, Ukraine and say uh, the questions be asked, do you think that the right questions are being asked? Because you kind of see a fixation on what he has said instead of more like, questions following different leads and topics so still following or still on pertaining to ukraine but are we are you looking to negotiate a piece it's more or less just a huge fixation on you said this what do you mean by that that's right and look that game of gotcha that's not new and it's what all politicians right left and center mm-hmm. hate most about the media is that they they think we're trying to you know shed more heat than light and i actually think Look, they use that to cover their own ass when they when they've made mistakes. But mm-hmm. I actually think the criticism is valid. You know, what what sells, especially on television, is conflict. You know, people yelling at each other. People, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the Academy Awards had one of the most great feel good pictures that come along in years, and it won the best Oscar. Nobody's even talking about it. What are we talking about? A guy took a swing at another guy, right? Mm-hmm. And that's sort of journalism writ large. And I think it's always been an issue. It's baiting pretty much. Yeah. This, you know, you know, and in, in J school, you know, the old line is, you know, the way, the way, you know, Hey, Senator, when did you stop beating your wife? You know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) what's a guy supposed to say that? And, and look, we do that and the pressures and, you know, Dan, we do it more now for, for there are economic pressures in journalism and they're real. Uh, the old in the old days, you'd write a story about a politician, a local politician in my California newspaper days, and they they had this frequent stupid complaint. Oh, you're just trying to sell newspapers. One time, a guy said that to me, and I said, I said uh, he was a 
school board member or a local politician. I said, oh, as a mayor, I said, Mr. Mayor, you don't, you don't, we don't have to sell newspapers. We have a monopoly. We make more money than we can possibly ever spend. Yeah. We're just trying to get the story right. And he laughed. He said, well, okay. But right now, the pressures, I mean, it's all about clicks. It's about eyeballs. It's about ratings. And sometimes if these politicians think, they think, well, you know, they don't really want to just do a nuanced story, both sides, explaining how difficult this is, because that won't get the attention. I think that's a fair criticism. I have it myself of our of our own profession. And how do you, being the executive editor of Real Clear Media Group, how do you like to approach things or how do you would like, how would you like things to be approached? <laughs> well, that's a long, that's a, I can speak, I give you Fidel Castro length speech about that, but I won't, but I'll <laughs> tell you, I'll tell you one thing. What I tell young reporters, I tell people, I tell old reporters, I tell myself, there's certain little rules when you're sitting down to write or when you're going to go on a podcast and talk about politics. Mm-hmm. And that is if, when you're characterizing the views of someone with whom you may disagree, when you're presenting their argument, make sure they recognize it as their argument. If you don't, you, you know, if you, you're just using straw men, you know, these phrases, these pejorative phrases, you know, um, so-and-so hates women or so, you know, this is the war on, you know, teachers. Those are not phrases that get you anywhere if you're actually trying to reach someone. And so th- that th- that's a starting place. When you you know describe someone's position, even if you think it's a terrible position, describe it as why they'd recognize it, not not your characterization of it. And if you do that, you'd be surprised how often it leads you to write and speak more fairly and to try and get the other side and to realize that most of these things we argue about, the solutions aren't easy. I, I, I mentioned gay marriage the other day, uh, the other, a moment ago. The reason that solved itself so fast is because there wasn't a really compelling other side to the argument. But those issues are rare. Usually there are compelling and competing arguments. I mean, this whole fight we're having about critical race theory is an example. That, that is a tough issue. It's a tough issue because there are very powerful arguments on each side. And I've to touch back on your outlet, reading about it and looking at it, you try to approach things nonpartisan as you're kind of describing write the argument or write the opponent's argument or say if there's an opponent, write their argument as they would say agree with it. So if you were to speak to them or write it out, they would read it and be like, yes, that's what I'm saying. So that's right. That's right. You if you write a, a story or go or have a podcast, you don't want some come coming so you don't want someone calling you up and say, you know, you completely mischaracterize what I believe in. Because that's not, that's a serious criticism. It's a serious thing. You have to you have to take that to heart because wait a minute. If you if you think so, if you think someone's argument's so bad, then you shouldn't have to gussy it up with your own, you know, your own baggage. You know, this was this was the great mystery of the Trump years to me. So the people in journalism and in partisan politics, the Republican never Trumpers, the Democrats, journalists, critics of Trump, and they were legion. The, the, the people who purported to despise Trump the most acted the most like him. Often they, they use ad hominem, they lie, they use ad hominem things, they take things out of context, they pretend they didn't know what you meant. And, and there's no reason to do that. I, you know, if ever there was a person, well, let me take a step back. There was a year, many years ago, before you were born, and when I was a little kid, uh, Barry Goldwater ran for president against Lyndon Johnson. And he was 
these criticisms about the media being unfair to conservatives go back that far. Um, it's 1964, and Barry said the press was out to get him. And afterwards, there, there was a columnist from San Francisco named Art Hoppe who was speaking at San Francisco State, and a journalism student asked him, do you think the press was unfair to Barry Goldwater? And Art Hoppe said, with perfect, perfect deadpan, yes, we quoted him. And that was the deal with Trump. You know, th- this was not a guy you had to make stuff up about. Yes. His own quotes, you just... You didn't have to exaggerate, but people did anyway. And, and that leads to almost like this distrust that's now so profound in the media or people have this outlook towards the media that whatever they say, I mean, I possess that to a certain extent, depending on who we're talking about. But I mean, the mainstream outlets, you hear a story from them. And I, at least in speaking from me, but I think I speak for a lot of other people as well. You hear that. And I'm like, oh, what's the spin on that? Like if it's Fox, I'm like, all right, well, well, like, what do they actually say? And if it's like CNN, I'm like, all right, what does the conservative side actually say? Like, and I mean, I just want to go back to you. What you said is, I think doing your opponent by doing your opponent a favor of writing their arguments, say fairly, even though it might not be a favor, but by writing it fairly and speaking to it fairly, you're also doing yourself a favor because now you have this instilled trust that people have in you. And when you don't do that, and then it's like, hey, you're lying. It the biggest example that immediately comes to mind is the Joe Rogan thing on CNN when they said he was taking horse dewormer. It was such a bold faced lie, and anyone who's remotely connected to society could fi- like figure that out. And that was just like now you have egg on your face, <laughs> like type yeah. Thing. I know. I, I you said it perfectly. I I just it, it always astonishes me why people don't see that. It just it never does anyone a favor now because and you know the and, mm-hmm. and you know going back to Donald Trump so the people yeah. who the, the criticisms of him are, I don't diminish them they're real I mean it, the guy the guy admits he doesn't read it. he's he's never read a presidential biography he admits this he brags about it he's running for the presidency so he doesn't know anything about the job he wants I mean there are all these things about this guy all the things he said and did in the business world and in politics even before he came into politics but by the time you know here's the problem so. Trump's accused of being a thief and a racist and an idiot and ignoramus, incurious, bully, all these things. But but the mainstream media had in one fashion or another written that same story about, had had accused Ronald Reagan, John McCain, Mitt Romney, George W. Bush, of all those same things. By the time Trump came along, and a lot of this stuff was true about Trump, the people that, you know, these uh, independent voters had tuned us out. And that's on us. So to that degree, it's not only... It's, it's counterproductive and it's not good for the country. It's better for the country, I believe, for people to have a high, high level of trust in the media. And I think we have to earn that, though. We, we don't, it's not a divine right. The archetype of that is the boy who cried wolf. It's the exact yeah. same thing. But I want to thank you for coming on the show today. I really appreciate our talk. It was interesting. It provided insights to me, but also the listeners about what the workings are and what reporters kind of like to see in white house briefings and the dynamic between say the president and the press versus the press secretary in the press. So I want to thank you today for coming on the show. Well, I want to thank you for being the kind of young journalist that's going to uh, get us out of this mess. So keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you for tuning in guys. Have a nice day.